Hello, Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the Friday Roundtable for the 9th of February, 2024. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Sean, how do we find you on this February morning? I'm doing great, Rudyard. Um, you know, a couple of really big weeks at The Hub. Um, last week, in fact, our, our biggest ever in terms of users and views. And so it's uh, a lot of fun to wake up in the morning these days. It's a target rich environment in the in the world of public <laughs> policy and governance. And yeah, so uh, you find me great. H how about yourself? Yeah, well, shameless pitch here. Hub <laughs> listeners, I mean, uh, things are going great guns for us. It's partly because all of you are reading and liking and sharing our content. We love that. But what we'd also love and we're frankly, we're behind where we want to be versus audiences where we're ahead of where we want to be in terms of the number of people reading and consuming our content, we're behind on, on donation, to be honest about it. So if you guys like the hub, if you and gals and what we're doing, you can become a subscriber for as little as 25 cents a day. You get all kinds of great perks and benefits, including our daily email hub forum, our daily discussion group, super civil, super substantive, lots of interesting policy insights. The benefits go on and on. So just a pitch here. Um, what we do is fun. As Sean said, we get up each day with like vim and vigor in our step, but it takes time and it takes money. Uh, and the growing staff that we have that creates all this great content for you, people like Amal Adder Guzman, the producer of this podcast, we could really use your support as donors. Okay, shameless plug over. <laughs> Let's get well on done. with well the show. I want to talk to you first, Sean, about the announcement in the last 24 hours that uh, Bell Canada is uh, cutting about 10% of its uh, workforce, some 4,000 plus people across Canada, in response to uh, plunging uh, quarter over quarter profits down by almost uh, 25 odd percent. This is uh, causing Bell to have to really look for new cost efficiencies and payroll is clearly where a lot of those efficiencies are gonna come. 10% of these cuts, roughly 400 jobs, will come out of Bell Media. And what I want you to unpack for us a bit, Sean, is the, is the response that we're seeing to this. I'm flabbergasted, because it's not just on the left where I might've expected it, it's also amongst conservatives. And it's almost as if the country has either lost its mind or never had <laughs> inside its mind an understanding of what for-profit, you know, share-issuing corporations are set up to do, what their purposes are. Just give us a taste of what the reaction's been to the Bell uh, cuts and why you think people are just misunderstanding something that I think is pretty fundamental and should be pretty positive about living in a capitalist society. Yeah, there, there are job losses uh, every day. We live in a dynamic uh, economy. So when the labor force survey each month, Rudyard announces we've created net new jobs or we've lost net jobs, the truth is under those numbers, there's a lot happening. A lot of jobs are being created and a lot of jobs are being destroyed. And so you know, listeners might say, why are you focused on this particular announcement? Uh, and I think it's because it signifies something deeper about Canadian capitalism, something deeper about the relationship between business and government, at least as, as it's manifested historically, and perhaps uh, a, a sign that something is, is about to significantly change. And, and I think what's at play here 
is really a, at the core of Canada's industrial structure. In in some key sectors, including aviation, uh, banking, telecommunications, and so on, we've essentially had a, a kind of government policy framework, which has limited competition for those companies, uh, provided them to a certain extent, what one might describe as regulated profits. But then it's come with something of an expectation that they that they're not merely functioning as for-profit entities. They're not following Milton Friedman's adage that, you know, the business of business is, is business. It's about profitability. There's been an expectation that these firms apply almost a, a public interest lens to what they do. And it seems to me that that grand bargain, as I called it in a, a recent conversation with Amanda Lang, is unwinding before our eyes. We're seeing, in part because of innovation and technology, certain innovations kind of climbing over the wall that government had created around these sectors. Think of Netflix or uh, think of FinTech or think or of Starlink. Ex ex exactly. And so I think increasingly what these companies are saying is, wait a second, you know, if we're going to be subjected to market competition, which we happen to think is a good thing at the hub, that we can't continue to operate these business lines that were, you know, to a certain extent, almost like little crown corporations within private entities, you know, basically the argument we've seen over the past 24 hours is, is, well, you have a privileged position in telecommunications. And so there's a kind of onus or responsibility for you to run non-profitable news organizations. Even to go one step further, it's like, whoa, whoa, you know, you declared billions of dollars in profits. How can you have profits and then cut your media division? Like, it's so frankly, just uneducated. They have profits because they are responsible as a corporation to create and return value to shareholders. Yes. The key thing about BCE, and every investor knows this, is the company's dividend. It is a dividend stock. It returns value to investors through its dividend. The share price of BCE today, because the company has been so beaten up lately over issues of government regulation and some changing consumer preferences, their, their share price is back to like, I forget, I haven't looked in the last day or two, but you know, 2014 value. So you've made no money in terms of the appreciation of your shares, but what you have been paid, including this year, is a juicy seven odd percent dividend. To maintain that dividend, they need three odd billion dollars a year of free cash flow to give back to their investors. So it's this weird thing like profits should just be, I don't know, this kind of magical thing that can be sprinkled out like pixie dust to yes. everyone and everything. And you can maintain the dividend, maintain your share price. You know, having a higher share price is important because this is capitalization for your company. It reflects how much money you can borrow. And in case of Bell, that's really important to investing in the long-term future of your technology and your networks. But no, you're supposed to have profit that you can give away to money losing to the tune of 40-odd million dollars a year yeah. media businesses and defend your dividend. I, I just think like people just become so uneducated. I'll just say it about how what's left of our market economy works. And I, I really feel and fear for these companies because this level of, of, of ill education of uninformed people is pushing government towards making like increasingly horrendous policy decisions. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that ill education is, we should be clear, is not limited to the Canadian public. In fact, it may be disproportionately concentrated 
in Ottawa, where, as you say, um, not only have we seen, um, uh, you know, some of the issues you've talked about, we've seen a set of policy decisions out of Ottawa when it comes to Bell's and the and the telecommunications profitable parts of their business, which is wireless and and uh, internet Fiber. and so on. Exactly. Um, that effectively, um, you know, says having having spent the billions of dollars to build broadband and, and fiber networks, they are now going to have to grant access to their competitors who spent no capital in the Canadian market. And not only are they going to have to grant access, they're not going to do so on, on market terms. They're going to do it on terms that are mandated by the CRTC. I mean, the government is essentially saying, we know precisely what the price is that you ought to grant access to your competitors. And and at the same time, we're going to, so we're going to squeeze you on that end. And on the other end, we're going to admonish you for uh, not living up to your bargain when it comes to, um, you know, the the, the news business. It, it just seems like they're being squeezed on both sides. And I should emphasize, I don't say any of these things as a, you know, a proponent of Bell per se. You know, in a lot of ways, it's just basic common sense if you're going to if we're going to be have an economy that is that is driven by for-profit firms then we're going to kind of have to live with the creative destruction that comes with that and you just get the sense that a lot of people increasingly believe particularly in the trudeau government that uh, that you can pose all of these kind of demands on the private market and yet it's somehow not supposed to respond and in fact it's supposed to continuing what it's always done, which is to throw off tax revenues to the government and dividends to its shareholders. Well, at some point, something has to give. And I think this week, what we saw, something gave. Yeah. Well, look, and, and you know who's to blame for these 9,000 job losses, including, you know, the 9,000, sorry, the 4,000, including you know, the losses in Bell Media that have gotten a lot of attention because the media just loves talking about itself. And when white collar, you know, laptop class people lose their jobs, that's, you know, more important, demanding more attention than, you know, the other people, as you say, in an economy where there are job losses and job gains every month. But I digress. The key thing here that drove this steep cut by by Bell to defend their free cash flow, to defend their dividend, to defend their share price, to defend their ability to access capital, uh, to you know finance the infrastructure investments that they need to make, all goes back to that CRTC decision to allow their competitors onto their fiber networks in Ontario and Quebec, but did not require Bell's competitors in Western Canada to do the same. So the this decision effectively like semi-nationalized these fiber networks on the part of Bell. And you could say, well, that's great. It's going to lead to lower prices uh, for fiber in Ontario and Quebec. Okay. It also led to 4,000 job losses and an increasingly difficult situation for Bell to create the free cash flow that it needs to operate as a you know, a high dividend yielding business, which is its value proposition to investors who give it capital in the first place to do all the things that the government wants it to do. So if you want to lay the blame on these cuts and especially the loss of these media jobs, you know, and I feel for these people in the media, it's going to be very hard for them to find other work. Like their skills are quite arcane. Uh, they don't easily plug into the rest of the economy. Blame the frigging CRTC for taking away from Bell this key strategy in their market differentiation with their other competitors. Their fiber lines 
we're part of a bundle. It's how they sell their other products. It's how they have a competitive advantage vis-a-vis their peers. It's why you might become a Bell subscriber as opposed to a Rogers or Telus subscriber. You do away with that and you blow a hole, you know, the size of a cannonball into (laughs) the balance sheet of this company going forward. They have to patch that up. And that costs, in this case, 4,000 people their jobs. That is on the head of the CRTC. Yeah, let me just make two points and then turn to you to wrap up this segment. Because I I think, you know, as I said earlier, the reason we're talking about this is not merely because Bell's a big company, but because it signifies some bigger underlying trends and and in our economy. Just the first point I'd make on on the question of the the CRT's decision uh, with respect to Bell's fiber infrastructure, uh, this is an issue, Rudyard, that I encountered a lot when I was part of the Harper government in Ottawa. Um, I think there's a tendency to sort of think of Canada's economic geography as if it's somehow Belgium or something like that. Like, (laughs) you know, we have these large, well-capitalized firms who are making massive infrastructure investments across the country, recognizing that there are going to be some markets like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and others, where there is a market case for those investments. But there are other parts of the economy, you know, not too far removed from places like where I grew up, Thunder Bay, where that market case is weaker. And as, as, as the government diminishes the investment incentives for these firms because they're effectively imposing their competitors on their infrastructure, as if we were Belgium, um, I think it's going to create the, you know, the, the potential here for, for real harm, to create a kind of asymmetry in terms of internet usage, internet experience in, in, in our country. And so as important as these job losses are, I think that issue in a way is the bigger long-term threat from these short-sighted decisions. The second thing I'd say, it comes back to the first point I made at the outset, is as you see this grand bargain start to unwind, you know, that is the expectation that government would offer up something and and the and these companies would in turn you know effectively carry out some business lines that weren't necessarily motivated principally by the profit motive as that unwinds you know one can't help but think that we're going to see bigger changes in our industrial structure is now the time for a conversation about opening up these sectors to foreign investment i mean let's let's open this economy up more broadly and put an end to this grand bargain once and for all the biggest obstacle to that is not these companies by the way it's a policy making mindset in ottawa which says we kind of like this deal because we get to kind of put our arms into the boardrooms of these companies and say you know hey financial services companies why don't you give people a break on financial services fees i know you're pr- private firms but we always can threaten the use of our regulatory lever? Why don't you continue routes to uh, unprofitable markets for airlines and et cetera, et cetera. And I I think that- Why don't you energy and gas companies cap your, you know, production because we think you should bear the majority of the burden of lowering our greenhouse gas emissions or why shouldn't you big tech bail out media, even though it's nothing to do with your business, you sell advertising, you don't sell news and journalism. Exactly. And I, so I think the biggest obstacle to the kind of changes that I think we would like to see at the hub, which which would be a, a more com- competition driven economy, isn't these companies. It is it, it is this policy making mindset in, in Ottawa. And, and, you know, one wonders if the announcement we saw today is the beginning of the end of, of, of that type of thinking. And, and I think that ultimately would be a good thing for the country. 
Well, let's continue to follow this space. Well, when we come back from the break, we're going to continue a little bit of a tradition here the last few weeks on the Hub Roundtable. We're going to bring a special guest on for you for a more kind of in-depth expert conversation. You're not going to want to miss this. So hang on for this short break. We'll be back on the other side. Hey, Hub Podcast listeners, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca Roger Griffiths here the executive director of the hub welcome back to our weekly roundtable I'm joined by Sean Spear our editor at large our special guest on the back half of the program is our now one month battle tested new managing editor at the hub he's been with us for over 30 days he's survived the gauntlet of uh hub's grueling publication schedule he is harrison loman harrison how do we find you today and what's been the first month for you like at the hub you came from tvo tell our audience a little bit about your background and what the heck you're doing as the managing editor sure yeah and i've got the i guess the battle scars to prove it already um Come, you know, I've worked at a bunch of the uh, the big guys, right? CBC, CTV, Literary Review of Canada. Did some work at the BBC. Worked at the Agenda for Steve Pagan for almost a decade, and uh, now I'm here at a place where we uh, throw a lot of spaghetti at the walls to see if it sticks. We experiment. Uh, it's often sticking, by the way, and we can we can show you that with our numbers. And um, uh, yeah, having a good time so far. Well, let's talk about some of the spaghetti that you threw this week. Um, we we published uh, an article at the Hub, which I'd strongly uh, encourage our, our listeners to check out. I know a lot of you did. It was an introspective piece from Harrison about his now more than a decade in the news media business, and in particular, what he's seen based on his own experience at journalism school and the, um, the a new generation of journalists coming out of journalism school the the essay itself is called journalism schools are failing a generation of students uh harrison let me ask you a two-part question just to kick it off first what's the key ideas in your essay and 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 perhaps secondly more importantly why did you decide to write it sure so uh i think i think this is increasingly interesting because there's a clash here almost sort of an oxymoron when it comes to university education and journalism given that the industry itself you know, calls for curiosity, it calls for questioning, debating, hearing all sides, uh, simple to understand language. And then it comes head to head with university campuses, which I know you guys have talked about frequently on the podcast, you know, where you're seeing a sort of almost complete, um, you know, center left, left wing ideological capture, where you see a strict adherence to a particular point of view, demand for, you know, complex terminology, etc. Uh, it came from something I noticed about five years or so ago when I was, uh, I was sort of speaking to interns and students and mentoring them. Uh, I increasingly noticed that they had a different view of sort of what journalism was, uh, what objectivity was, um, and their pitches almost sort of exclusively started to come from the social justice uh, perspective. You know, this group did 
did, did this to this group. Uh, let's tell their story. You know, here's what they did wrong. Here's how we fix it. Here, who, who, here's who's in the wrong. Um, and as I noticed that, I also looked back to the reaction to, you know, uh, the murder of George Floyd and how schools reacted to that. And you can see in my article that I, I list these calls to actions from groups of students, you know, that wanted to sort of upend journalism programs, calling them like hotbeds of white supremacy. And then the response from schools uh, basically saying, we agree with everything with what you say here, and we're happy to sort of change how journalism is taught and uh, tell us what we need to do. Yeah, it was a, a, a powerful essay that, as you say, really documents in with some evidence these broader trends at, at journalism school and how they're manifesting in the industry more broadly, which prompts the obvious question, <laughs> what's been the reaction? What what did what have you seen publicly and 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 what have you heard privately from your colleagues in the industry? Uh sure. So I've been called um, a paid Zionist shill. I've been threatened uh, for libel. But I've also got a lot of private messages from people within the industry, numerous CBC hosts, formal, former global journalists, people from CTV who say, we've seen this going on. We're worried increasingly. You know, these kids come out of school with a lot of technical skills. Um, but when it comes to their approach to stories, their curiosity, their, you know, ability to see various sides, they're lacking and there's a concern there. Do you think there's an impulse for reform? I mean, as you say, there's journalism schools, which were themselves kind of radicalized over the last few years. I don't know. I don't feel very optimistic. There's going to be much in the way of change there. It seems like Harrison, that the students going to these schools want what they're getting. Like they want this message of a more evangelical calling uh, for them in the future. I guess whether they have a job, given <laughs> the recent uh, BC layoffs and other layoffs in the industry will be an open question. But, you know, where could the reform come from? Could it come from the people that are, to at least to this point, surreptitiously emailing you and messaging you saying they support this this call for greater objectivity, for pushing back against, you know, a first person pronoun style of news reporting. Well, I can tell you, I had one TMU professor message me the other day, and she agreed with what I, a lot of what I had to say, but said, please don't treat us journalism professors as a monolith. We don't all feel the same way about this. To which my response would be, if you don't feel the same way about this, you need to speak out and say something. You need to stand up and say something. So that would involve sort of pressure from the inside. And I don't think that's happening. Um, and you, <laughs> by the fact that people that messaged me said, please, if you're going to quote me, quote me anonymously tells you something from those who sort of are in the industry outside of the schools. So what is that then? That's kind of like, as you, you open this up that, you know, that's shadows of academia. There's kind of a policing of speech, a, I guess, a an implied threat that one would incur a big professional cost here if you say something that is contrary to the current kind of orthodoxy in journalism schools right now. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you the people that will be listened to are more so sort of young, uh, female, racialized, people of color, uh, journalists. They will be the ones that will get more attention from those on the left, right? Because the message that I'm sent and what I'm hearing is, 
you know, the people that are pushing back against this stuff are overwhelmingly white dudes who themselves were not objective when they uh, were part of the journal journalism industry years ago. And uh, it, to be listened to, and I tell you, some of the people that messaged me were young, racialized female journalists who are worried. So I think it to get the attention of these folks on the left, to convince them that something's wrong here, you they'll need to hear from those people to, to wake up to some of this stuff. Let's just in our remaining moments shift to the Bell Canada layoffs, the BC layoffs, 4,000 people, only 10% if you actually read the company's uh, quarterly prospectus will, uh, I mean, it's still 4,000 jobs. I don't want to, you know, play that down, but it's not as if the 4,000 layoffs are all happening in the Bell Media Division. What are you hearing and seeing out there, uh, Harrison, in terms of your colleagues, how they're reacting to this? I mean, I have a sense, you know, Global, I believe, announced also yesterday some more layoffs in the media space. Like, are we approaching that implosion moment? Because a lot of people have talked over the last few years about a potential kind of implosion moment for mainstream media in Canada. We've got 10%. Doesn't sound like quite enough to me of cuts coming to the CBC. But you just add this all up to what have been rounds and rounds of layoffs that have gone on over the last five years. Are we at the tipping point? Mm -hmm. So I can tell you, speaking to people at CTV this week, um, it's uh, it's a bloodbath. Um, I, I don't use that sort of lightly. Like people are sort of in the hallways crying. Um, there's a lot of sort of devastation there. People W5, that yes. we were thinking maybe the longest running show right. on Canadian yeah. television, yeah, gone. Is gone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, we have Fifth Estate, but in terms of long form current affairs, investigative journalism in Canada, sort of what's left for these kids that I'm describing to you in these universities, what the heck do they look up to? What do they see on the other side? It's just an, an abyss, right? Like you, you crunched the numbers a few months ago, Rudyard. What is it less than maybe 10,000 working journalists across the country? This is, this is wild. And uh, people, you know, the, in terms of cuts, in terms of job losses, the eye of Sauron is now Falling on the CBC. People are looking at the CBC and a potential Pierre Polyev government and saying, you know, the, the, the other shoe's going to drop here. Um, I myself think that there should be a, a strong federal public broadcaster um, talking about the stuff in this this column. What I care about is that it is it is objective and it sort of does its job. Um, having worked at the CBC just to reiterate, it, these schools and the CBC, it's not like they are liberal or, or NDP partisans. They are employed and run by increasingly center-left people who do not rub shoulders with or understand uh, right-wing point of views. It's not like they're getting calls from the PMO on a red telephone no, in no, Catherine no, no, Tate's they just, office. They're, yeah. But they are, they are overwhelmingly uh, drawn to, interested in, and writing about uh, left-wing narratives, left-wing topics. Yeah. So final question to wrap this edition of the Roundtable up, Harrison. Um, are you enjoying your time at the Hub? Are you going to stick around for another month? It's a grind, but it's fascinating, right? <laughs> you know, like we have, we've look at the numbers every day. We challenge ourselves. We've got uh, engaged, youthful, energized staff that want to try things. Um, and it's just weird that in the midst of all this, you know, we're doing something right. All these broken models when it comes to funding journalism. And I think it's pretty impressive that we can say, standing on top of the rubble, that the hub is hiring. We're growing, we're expanding, 
and uh, you know, we want to keep going. And uh, I think, you know, things are pretty optimistic in our sort of little space of the journalistic world over in downtown Toronto. And so, Luke, Luke out there in Edmonton. Yes, yes, Edmonton. Jeff BC. Russ in in Vancouver. We're committed to uh, you know trying to cover this country uh, at least. Well, let's say the Ottawa River <laughs> West. To be fair. Um, well, look, Harrison, we love uh, love what you've been doing with us. Uh, two great pieces. Check out Harrison's kind of uh, earlier his first essay for us that also really uh, blew the uh, the doors off the the website on. Uh, the former UK High Commissioner's secret cable about Canada. You can find all of Harrison's writing at uh, thehub.ca. And also, just if you are a regular podcast listener, you may have seen the last few days hub headlines popping up in your podcast feed. Enjoy. This is a new daily feature. We're going to provide you a kind of audiobook version of the best commentary and analysis in the hub each morning. It's kind of like hub on the go. We know many of you don't have time in the morning to get on a screen. Maybe you're uh, dropping kids at school, commuting, just on with your busy life. So check out Hub Headlines. You can get uh, all of our writers' commentary analysis read to you each morning uh, in the convenience of your podcast platform of your choice. So thanks for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I was joined by Sean Spear our editor-at-large, and Harrison Lohman, our managing editor. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support. And we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.